God, uh, there is something that happens, I know, in me when I gather with others and I get to rehearse truth that I know is taught in your word and we do this in song or we do this in prayer or we do this in reading of scripture or now, Lord, we do it just from studying your word. Something happens uh, in us. Your spirit speaks to us and encourages us. And I was just really moved, Father, as we were, we were singing and, and making the declaration that our God is three in one. Uh, you are a father to us. And at the same time, you are God with us, Emmanuel. And from being Emmanuel, you, you became, you are our savior saving us from our sin, and you don't just leave us there, but you empower us with your spirit. Holy Spirit, would you open our eyes and our ears now as we come to study your word? Let this time not be wasted, but speak to us and make us good listeners, for we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we're going to continue our study of the Pentateuch. Uh, We have so far studied the book of Genesis Uh, We studied Exodus up to chapter 20, and then we took some time looking at the Ten Commandments in detail. And this morning, we pick up our study at Exodus chapter 25, which is all about God's house, a nomadic house, a tent house, a tabernacle, if you will. And uh, this is what we read in Exodus 25, starting in verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution. For every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for setting for the ephod and for the breastpiece. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. You might want to, if you have a Bible, underline that word dwell. Because that really is the key word. God intends to dwell among his people. And that Hebrew word there, translated dwell or live in some versions, is the same word as the word tabernacle. It's uh, something like our word tent. Uh, It could be used as a noun. It could be used as a verb. It could be translated as God saying, I will tabernacle. I will tent in their midst. God says, Moses, I want a tent. I want a tabernacle. I want a home to remind my people that I am dwelling with them. And the great promise that God made to Abraham long, long ago in Genesis 17, 8, that he, Abe, would have countless, countless descendants, as many as the stars in the sky, and that God would be their God and they would be his people. That promise is now going to be true of a whole people, a whole nation, not just one man. And they will be his people. He will be their God. God is going to dwell among them. And God wants them, therefore, to know him. Uh, So there will be a place full of details, full of all kinds of activities that will teach them about God's character and God's will and God's provision. So God says, I want my people to build me a house, a sanctuary. 
Exodus 25, 2, speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution from every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. Everybody could take part in making God's tabernacle. That's what's being offered here. It was strictly voluntary. Uh, there were many things that they could bring for this purpose. When we read that list, gold, silver, bronze, yarn, fine linen, olive oil, goat hair, in order to make cloth, tanned ram skins, goat skin leather, acacia wood, spices, onyx stones, and other kinds of precious stones. These were the things that people could bring for the making of the tabernacle. And all of this stuff is quite valuable. It's made valuable through labor. It's made valuable through cost. It's important that these gifts be valuable. When you give somebody you love a, a present, uh, you want to give them, let's say, a special gift. Usually it's something that costs money or it costs time or it costs labor or it costs careful thought or reflection. Those are the gifts that are most meaningful. They are costly gifts, costly in some way, shape, or form. And so these gifts for the tabernacle were a way of loving, a way of thanking, a way of worshiping, a way to express honor to this great God who had brought them out of Egypt. So how do the people respond? Exodus 36 says that uh, Moses called Bezalel and Aholiab and every craftsman in whose mind the Lord had put skill and everyone uh, whose hearts stirred them up to come to do this work. And they received from Moses all the contribution that the people of Israel had brought for doing the work on the sanctuary. And they still kept bringing him free will offerings every morning so that all the craftsmen who were doing every sort of task on the sanctuary came each from the task that he had been doing and said to Moses, the people are bringing much more than enough for doing the work that the Lord has commanded us to do. So Moses gave command and word was proclaimed throughout the camp, let no man or woman do anything more for the contribution for the sanctuary. And so the people were restrained from bringing for the material they had was sufficient to do all the work and more. So Moses had to tell the people, no more stuff. <laughs> we, we don't need anything. You, you've responded overwhelmingly with offerings that, that more than meet the need. And so the people uh, just had apparently a, a heart to give, a heart to participate in this opportunity. And they build the tabernacle just as God instructs them. Uh, and we won't look specifically now, but in the book of Numbers, God instructs them as to the placement of the tabernacle. Once this thing is built, where is it going to be? Uh, when the Israelites would camp, you understand, because they're moving around in the wilderness. When they would camp, the tabernacle was to be set in the middle of the 12 tribes of Israel. Three tribes were to camp on each side, the four sides. Uh, this was a way to remind them that they were to be a people with whom God was dwelling. God was right in the middle of them. And the side of God's house, this tabernacle, was to remind them of his presence. God is with us. God isn't going to leave us. Uh, it was to affect the way they behaved. It was the, to affect the way they lived as they interacted with each other. The tabernacle was one big giant object lesson or metaphor, if you will. And I want to just kind of describe aspects of this tabernacle, kind of moving from the outside in the courtyard to the inside, the Holy of Holies. If you've ever read the book of Exodus before, 
you may remember that there are actually in the book of Exodus two complete accounts, Exodus 25 to 30 and Exodus 35 to 40. And when you read these accounts, if you are human, well, they get a little boring. Uh, but there's a real important reason why this stuff is repeated. In English, if a word or a thought is of some great importance, we underline it or we italicize it or we boldface it, what have you. But in Hebrew, uh, if you wanted to underline the fact that something was of great importance, what you did was repeat it. Practically verbatim, you just repeat it. Uh, that's why these accounts are given twice. This stuff is real important, even though when we read it, it's full of measurements and full of details, some of which we have a hard time understanding. But it's, it's repeated because, precisely because it is so important that we understand what's going on here. And we start in the outside with the outer courtyard, which is about 75 feet wide and 150 feet long. 11,250 square feet is this outside court perimeter. Understand the tabernacle was considered God's dwelling. It was God's house. Yes, it was a place of worship, but it was chiefly pictured as God's dwelling. In fact, the way it's described to us, it sounds very much like a nomadic tent in which a family would live. And we'll have more of that in a minute. Uh, this, this dwelling of God's is set apart from all the other dwellings. There's actually a curtained wall around it. And of course, this signified the fact that who was living inside was special, was holy, was set apart from everyone and everything else. When you entered this area, you were entering sacred or holy ground. In the courtyard, once you entered, you would see two objects in front of the tabernacle itself. First, you would see a bronze altar. Uh, we read in Exodus 27 that you shall, God says, you shall make the altar of Achaia wood, five cubits, that's seven and a half feet long and five cubits broad. The altar shall be square and its height shall be three cubits, about four and a half feet. And you shall make horns for it on each of the four corners. Its horns shall be of one piece with it and you shall overlay it with bronze. Now there were different kinds of offerings offered on this altar, constantly being offered on this altar. Some were bloody, were therefore animals. Uh, others were not. They were grain and wine. We'll talk more of that in a moment. Uh, bloody offerings are described in great detail in the book of Leviticus. If you want to read some good bloody accounts of how to offer certain animals, you can just start reading the book of Leviticus. There were sin offerings, for example. Well, always on the national feast days, there were sin offerings offered for the, first for the priest and then for the nation. Uh, also, people could bring a, a sin offering to the tabernacle to be offered on their behalf. Uh, these offerings were ox and goats and sheep and pigeons. Now, there was a way if you couldn't afford any of those things, not even a pigeon, you could also offer a sin offering just of fine flour. The point being, rich or poor, it didn't matter. Nobody was to be kept from being able to offer a sin offering at the tabernacle. Everyone had something they could bring to God for 
a sin offering. There were guilt offerings, which was kind of a special kind of sin offering. This was an offering that was made to God, but with the understanding that some kind of restitution or legal satisfaction was being made to the party that had been wronged. And as a part of that, you would bring a guilt offering to the tabernacle. There were burnt offerings where the entire animal would be consumed. Normally, when offerings were brought, like even a sin offering, a sacrifice was made by a family or by an individual, that family or that individual would actually eat a meal consisting partly of the meat which they had just given for roasting for sacrifice on the altar. You know, the priest would, of course, butcher it and then cook it, and the people would eat it. That was part of the worship, having a meal, a meal that had been given to God, but part was given back. But with the burnt offering, that was a little different. That actually wasn't eaten. It was wholly consumed on the altar itself. And it was a picture kind of illustrating the fact that the worshiper was utterly committed to God. It was perhaps making restitution. And this burnt offering was entirely consumed just as the person was entirely consecrating themselves to the Lord. Uh, there were fellowship or peace offerings, they're sometimes called in the Old Testament. These were animal sacrifices that were offered by those who were at peace with God. And these were offerings that would express gratitude or thanksgiving or obligation or fellowship, things of that nature. Uh, if somebody received an unexpected blessing, for example, they could bring a sacrifice as a way of saying, thank you, God. Thank you for your provision. Thank you for hearing my prayer. If somebody made a vow to God that they were especially concerned to keep, and if you made a vow to God, you better be especially concerned to keep it, they would bring a sacrifice as a way of saying, God, I'm making this promise to you. I, I'm, I'm deadly serious, and here is my sacrifice to you just to underline and highlight the fact that I'm, I'm really serious about this. If somebody just wanted to say, God, your kindness, your mercy they're incredible. They're overwhelming. You are so good to me. God, I love you. Well, they could bring a fellowship, a peace offering to God. Now, uh, there were also bloodless offerings. Things like grains or wines or fine flour, unleavened bread, cakes, wafers, uh, wafers or oils, things of that nature. These offerings almost always accompanied other animal offerings, blood offerings, it was a way really in the mindset of the ancient Middle East of rounding out a good meal given to the God that you were worshiping, uh, giving God a pleasing aroma, meat, you know, there would be wine, there would be grain. These kinds of sacrifices were taking place every day, all day long. The priests would offer these sacrifices on the altar before God and the people that were in the courtyard could see this happening constantly, as I said, hour after hour after hour. Now, another, see, a lot of details here. And if you want to read these chapters, you can just go check out and make sure that I'm not lying to you, you know, that I'm getting the details right. I actually recommend it to you. Uh, you, you should, uh, but, but it's important that we kind of step back and look down from a, a kind of an over, uh, overlooking kind of perspective and understand what's going on in the big picture with these things. Uh, another item that you would see in this courtyard in addition to the altar was a laver a giant bowl, a basin, if you will, of water. Uh, Exodus 30, the Lord said to Moses, you shall also make a basin of bronze with its stand of bronze for washing. You shall put it between the tent of meeting and the altar. So you've got the altar, the basin, and the tabernacle. Uh, and you shall put water in it with which Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet 
When they go into the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, or when they come near the altar to minister, to burn a food offering to the Lord, they shall wash with water so that they may not die. That's an instruction you don't want to miss right there, right? They shall wash their hands and their feet so that they may not die. It shall be a statute forever to them, even to him and to his offspring throughout their generations. And really what we have going on here, this is a, a picture of what it means to cleanse yourself. Uh, a, cl- a picture of, of what it means to, as you minister to the Lord, as you come to the Lord, uh, to, to be clean as opposed to unclean. Imagine for the priests uh, who have to butcher animals and sacrifice them and cook them on the altar. What a messy, messy, messy job that's going to be. If you've ever been in a, a butcher shop where they actually do the butchering themselves and you'll sometimes see them wearing a white apron and what's all over that apron? Well, blood, you know. Some of us from this, but some of us just from handling the meat. It's a bloody job. It's a messy job. And uh, this too is a picture, a lesson about the need for purity and the need for cleanliness, uh, cleanness, things necessary to be in the presence of God. Ceremonial cleanliness. God is teaching his people something about his own holiness, something about what's necessary to dwell with him. Now from here we go inside the tabernacle, inside the tent of meeting. Inside the tabernacle, some of you will know, there are two chambers in this large, large tent. And this too is very much like a nomadic tent that a family would live in in that day. Uh, There was an outer chamber where you might receive a guest. You, You might break bread or have a meal with them in this outer chamber. You might talk there together. You show hospitality. God's house was similar. The outer chamber was called the holy place. And it had three main pieces of furniture in the holy place. There was a lampstand, a lamp that was always burning. It was the priest's job to keep all the pots filled with oil in this lamp, always burning. In fact, God says, you shall command the people of Israel that they bring to you pure beaten olive oil for the light, that a lamp may regularly be set up to burn. In the tent of meeting outside the veil that is before the testimony, he's talking about the Holy of Holies. We'll talk about that in a moment. Aaron and his son shall tend it from evening to morning all night long before the Lord. It shall be a statute forever to be observed throughout their generations by the people of Israel. So this lamp was to be lit continually. And it was an indicator for lack of a better way of putting this, it was, a, it was a clear, visible indicator to the priest that God was home. Uh, he's always there. He is always present, always available, always in their midst. It's like that. Some of you will remember this, the old Motel 6 commercial. Remember that one? Tom Bodette will leave the light on for you. Uh, that's kind of a silly example, but it's, it, it kind of gets at the message. There's always a light on here. God is always present. God is always at home. God is always dwelling with us. God says to his priests, make sure the light stays on. I want my people to remember I am home. I am here. I am with them. I am right in their midst. And this is a reminder that God's people always need. They needed it then. They had a propensity to forget that God was in their midst. We need it 
now? How often do you forget in the face of stress or challenge or difficulty or confusion? How often do you forget that God is right there with you in your midst? It's something God's people tend to forget. God is endeavoring to teach the people of Israel that the light is always on. Now, there is, um, and when that light is on, he is available. There's also an altar of incense uh, in this holy place. Uh, This, of course, one of its functions was just to cover up the odor of all the animal sacrifice that was happening just outside. That would have been intense, no doubt. But this incense was more than that. It also symbolized, symbolized the conversation. It symbolized prayer. Uh, the incense, as it would rise up to God, was symbolic of the prayers of God's people constantly rising up to the Lord. And God was pleased, we're told, with the aroma of their sacrifices, the burning of their incense, the prayers of God's people. It's the same imagery. We've seen this even in the New Testament. Some of you were here when we studied the book of Revelation. There was that picture of the 24 elders who are representative of the church and they're falling down before the lamb and they're worshiping him. And each one is holding a golden bowl full of incense that's rising up there in the throne room. And that incense, we are told of the prayers of the church, the prayers of God's people. They're petitioning the lamb. And the point again is that in God's home, there is conversation. In God's home, there is communication and it's constant. God is always there. He's always listening. He's always hearing the communication that we offer up to him. Now there's also in the holy place, one more item, a table. It's the table of the presence. In Exodus 25, it says, God says, you shall make a table of Achaia wood. Uh, Two cubits, that's 36 inches, shall be its length. A cubit, 18 inches, inches, its breadth, and a cubit and a half, 27 inches, its height. So you shall overlay it with pure gold and make a molding of gold around it. And you shall make a rim around about a hand breadth, about three inches wide, and a molding of gold around the rim. And you shall make for it four rings of legs close to the frame. The rings shall lie as holders for the poles to carry the table. You shall make the poles of Achaia wood and overlay them with gold and the table shall be carried with these. And you shall make its uh, its plates and dishes for incense and its flagons and bowls with which to pour drink offerings. You shall make them a pure gold and you shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me regularly. This table holds all kinds of things. Plates, bowls, uh, dishes for more incense, flagons, bowls for drinking and so, but it also holds bread, the bread of the presence. God is saying, and you shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me regularly. We're told in Leviticus chapter 24 that every week on the Sabbath, 12 loaves of bread were to be set on this table. One loaf for each tribe in Israel, 12 tribes. Uh, Anybody here like the smell of fresh bread? Yeah, I mean, what's better? Walk into a, a home, a room, and fresh bread has just been baked. It is a great smell. And that smell says somebody is home and they have been preparing something for you. 
That's part of the message here. You're in the very tabernacle, the very dwelling, the very home of God. And this is called the bread of the presence. Literally, in Hebrew, it's called the bread of the face. And of course, it's referring to God's face. Uh, it's bread that is to be set before the face of God, the presence of God. And you have to understand the breaking of bread in that culture in particular was a, a very significant sign of friendship. That showing that kind of hospitality, sitting down together to break bread together was a, was a sign of deep community, could be. God wanted that kind of relationship with Israel. In fact, the matter is God wants that kind of relationship with you and me. Nothing has changed. You know, people who read the Old Testament and they encounter God there in the Old Testament, then they read the New Testament. I've heard some say, boy, these sound like two different gods. You haven't read very clear, clearly or carefully if you think that. God of the Old Testament, exactly the same as the God of the New. Um, the way we relate to him has changed slightly or significantly because of Jesus. More of that in a minute. But the God of the Old Testament wants relationship with us, wants communion with us, wants uh, fellowship with us. And the bread of the presence pictures the fact that God wants to sit down with us, eat and talk. And this, of course, is kind of a foretaste of another table that shows up later on. The Lord's table, the table that last week we, many of us came to and partook of, breaking bread there, the bread symbolizing Jesus' body, the presence of Jesus that hung on a cross and was broken for us, the Lord's table. Now, here's the deal. All of these regular temple rituals, of which there were many, the lighted lamp, the altar of incense, the table of the bread of presence, they were all indicators in a Middle Eastern nomadic culture that somebody was home. Somebody was present. This was a reminder to Israel that God, our God, is with us. God dwells in our midst. We are never alone. Our prayers are a pleasing aroma rising up to him. God wants relationship with us. The sacrifices, of course, were all about opening the way for that relationship to happen. Us as sinners with a holy God who is perfect, sinless. All of these things are pictured in the courtyard, in the outer chamber, in the holy place. But there's one more chamber. And that's the inner chamber, the most holy place, the holy of holies, as it's sometimes called. This chamber is very carefully set apart from all the rest of the tabernacle by a curtain, by a veil. Uh, it's a very heavy curtain. It's a curtain woven from wool. Uh, there are blue and purple and scarlet colors woven into this very thick, heavy wool curtain. And upon the curtain, uh, there is embroidered cherubim, golden angelic creatures. Uh, this would have been quite majestic when you walk in uh, to see, to behold this curtain. It, it indicated that what was on the other side of the curtain was of great importance and was a place of greatest intimacy. Uh, this was set aside for just one person, the high priest who represented Israel to God. And you know what the penalty was if somebody violated entry into the Holy of Holies? If just you or I entered, wandered into the Holy of Holies, should that be even be possible to happen? Well, the penalty for that was death, death. The same penalty, I might add, for adultery when somebody violated the marriage chamber 
the place of greatest intimacy in a tent, in a home of someone in that nomadic culture. In this room, there was only one piece of furniture, and it was a, it was a box. It was called the ark. It was about four feet long, two feet wide, about two feet high. And God says to his people, I want you to make me a box. I want you to put it in the most holy place. I want you to keep some real important reminders there with that box. And uh, three things, in fact, and all three of these things, interestingly, are about trust. All three of them. God says, I want a jar of manna in there. And we studied that together. Um, The manna is all about remembering to trust God, like, you know, in the wilderness, in the desert, where every single morning the people of Israel had to trust that God would put manna on the ground that they could collect and gather. And that would be their food. That would be their sustenance. The very provision they needed for life, God would provide. Only one day a week was it not there. And that was the Sabbath. And you were supposed to gather twice as much the day before. It was all about trust. Manna was just a life lesson about trust. And God also says, I want you to put the rod of Aaron in this box. And you can read all about that in Numbers 16 and 17. This is a rod that God caused to blossom with almond blossoms. It was another time where the people of God were challenged. Many of their people didn't like the leaders that God had provided for them. And so there was kind of a revolt, a big revolt going on. Some people wanting other leaders. And Aaron's rod blossoming was all about God indicating, no, these are my leaders And that was another lesson, frankly, in trust. Uh, And then lastly, God says, I want you to put into the box the two tablets of the covenant. Most likely he's referring to their copy and the copy that was God's copy. Both partners in that covenant have a copy of the law. And so these two tablets, the Ten Commandments, which we just finished studying, these were also contained in this box, the ark. And they would describe how God wants us to live, the sum and substance of the covenant, how we live with God, how we live with each other. They would describe what's right, what's good, what's holy, what God wants from us, from them. And then God says this amazing thing in Exodus 25. He's been describing what this box or this ark is supposed to look like, and this is what he says. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold, This is not something overlaid with gold. This is pure gold. This thing would be really, really heavy. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half, 45 inches shall be its length and a cubit and a half, 27 inches its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim, angelic creatures of gold, of hammered work shall you make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on one end and one cherub on the other. Of one piece with the mercy seat shall you make the cherubim in its two ends. The cherubim shall spread their wings out above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings. Their faces uh, one to another toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony, these three items that he had mentioned, that I shall give you. Now, unfortunately for us today, when we hear the word cherubim, we have this dumb notion of, you know, a little valentine, chubby creature, you know, kind of a thing, kind of a cute baby-looking thing. But that, of course, is far afield from the reality. That's not the idea here in Scripture. The idea here is that two of the greatest 
forces in the universe, two angelic beings of tremendous power and glory are literally humbled in the presence of God, Almighty God, because of His holiness, because of of His perfection, because of His power, because of His glory, because of His, His majesty. And the image here is God is on his throne and even the angelic powers that be, you know, wait upon his command. They bow before him in worship. And uh, what is, what, when we read that passage just a moment ago, what is the lid of the ark called? What's well, called a mercy seat. And it's called this seven times. And what comes next is quite amazing in in verse 22. God says, there I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. The God of the universe says, I will come and I will Uh, sit on a box in a tent so you will know I am always with you and you are never alone. And there with me, you will find mercy at the mercy seat. I will be your God. You will be my people and you will find mercy because that is what you need. And that's the design of the tabernacle. That's the design of God's house, the sanctuary, God's dwelling. All of it is designed to teach his people about him, about God, and about how to dwell with him. Every day the Israelites could see the tabernacle right there in their midst and they could remember that God is with them and they could remember that God is merciful to us. One day a year, just to underline this, it was a sacred day. Uh, This was a day more sacred than all others. It was called the Day of Atonement. And we read in Scripture that it shall be a statute for you forever that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict or deny, is what the intention there is, the meaning. You shall afflict yourselves, deny yourselves, and shall do no work, either the native nor the stranger who sojourns among you. For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest and you shall afflict or deny yourselves. It is a statute forever. So on this day, the the whole community came to a complete stop. Nobody would work. Nobody was eating. They were fasting. Only on this day could the most holy place be entered. Only on this day, because God wanted his people to know that the thing above all else, really, the thing that blocked them having the relationship that God wanted them to have with him was this problem, a huge problem of sin. It's our unholiness. Our sin and all its ugliness and foolishness and evil and hatred and self-centeredness is what keeps us from living in the most holy place and dwelling with God. And so one day a year, the most holy day, you have to imagine all the people of Israel gathered around. I'm sure so many gathered, they couldn't even begin to get in the courtyard. They would uh, perhaps gather on the hillsides or just gather outside the curtain uh, and they would gather around the tabernacle and everything stops for this one day. And there's a crowd standing around and they're watching to see what will happen. And the priest makes his sacrifice first for his own sins and then for the sins of Israel. 
And he takes the blood of the sacrifice into the holy of holy places and he sprinkles it on the atonement cover, on that mercy seat that covers the ark. And Israel stands outside and they're watching and I'm sure some were praying and I'm sure some parents were explaining to their children, this is what's going on. This is what the priest is doing. This is what we're waiting. We're waiting to see if that priest gets killed in there or if he comes back outside and and God has received and accepted the the sacrifice. And uh, all of these people are sinners just like us. They have the same problems all of us have. Coveting, greed, cheating, lying, sexual sin, marriages breaking apart, tongues out of control, thinking that I just need something or someone else other than God to make me happy. They were just like us. And they've come needing their sins to be forgiven and they're all gathered around and they're watching to see what will happen. Sacrifice has been made. Will it be okay? Will God forgive? Will God accept? Will God be merciful? And the high priest goes into the Holy of Holies and as people wait and watch and wonder, uh, according to one ancient Jewish tradition uh, and teaching, the high priest was told not to go in there and stay too long, lest all of Israel be in terror. Like what's going on in there? (laughs) You know, are they going to come out? Is he going to be okay? And so the high priest eventually comes out. And when he, when he did, the people could breathe a sigh of relief and they could rejoice. God was again merciful. But, but the high priest isn't done. He actually takes another animal. There's one more thing this high priest does. And this is to signify again what has just happened. This time he takes a goat. And he places his hand on the head of the goat and he confesses the sin of God's people as his hand rests upon the head of the goat. Can you imagine what that's like? I wonder how long that took. How long would it take me to put my hand on a goat and confess all of your sins? Just mine would take a while. And you all are way worse than me. So we'd be here a while doing this. God, forgive our idolatry. God, forgive our fashioning other gods. God, forgive our dishonoring you, dishonoring your name. Forgive our breaking of your Sabbath. God, forgive our dishonoring of our parents and our relationship and our siblings. Forgive us, God, for our hatred, our anger, or the murder that's in our hearts, the lust, the unfaithfulness to our marriage, the cheating. Forgive us for lying and shading the truth. Forgive us for exaggeration. God, forgive us for coveting. And he confesses all of their sins while his hand rests on the head of this goat. And then we are told that the goat will carry on itself all their sins to a remote place. And the man who takes that goat there shall release it in the wilderness. And when that happens, the people celebrate, you see. By the way, this goat doesn't go out there just to live happily ever after in the wilderness. This goat's going to die in the wilderness. That's what's going to happen. This goat bearing their sin is going to die. And you see, the point is that God has forgiven them for yet another year and their sins are gone. They vanished. Now understand, year after year, decade after decade, even century after century, people are born, they live, they die, and they watch this system with all of its symbols and all of its rituals. And then one day, a teacher comes along who's unlike any other teacher that's ever come along. This is a teacher who teaches with authority. And this is a teacher who loves with abandon and who heals with power, unlike any other healer that's ever been witnessed. 
And this is a teacher who reaches out to the poor in spirit and the meek and a teacher who heals the sick. And a fisherman named John says that in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word dwelt, there it is again. The Greek word literally means tabernacled, tented. Jesus tented with us. Jesus tabernacled among us. And John says, we beheld his glory. The writer of Hebrews reflecting on the tabernacle and reflecting on all the sacrifices that had been taking place for centuries uh, writes these words. He says, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter and get this, this is mind boggling. If you were a Jew in this day, you'd go, that can't happen. But the writer of Hebrews says, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain, the veil that's there, that is his body, Jesus' body. Remember what the penalty was for going into the most holy place. It was death. That's the penalty. Only one person can go there, the high priest. Only when he's offered sacrifice for his own sin and for the sins of the people. The writer of Hebrews says, don't be afraid anymore. The penalty of death has been paid once and for all by Jesus' own sacrifice. So the way has been opened. The curtain, in fact, that hangs there in the temple, first in the tabernacle, later in the temple, that curtain has been torn in two. This gigantic, thick, woolen curtain. Matthew and Mark uh, both tell us that when Jesus died on the cross, something happened to that veil, that curtain that hangs in the temple, the veil that divided the holy place from the holy of holies, that veil is torn in two. And that was all about Jesus opening the way into the holy of holies, God's intimate presence for you and for me. That's what that was about. In Hebrews chapter 10, we are told, the writer says, and since we have a great high priest, not a priest who's a sinner like us, since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled. That's what the high priest would do when he would go into that Holy of Holies. He would sprinkle the mercy seat, right? Well, now our hearts have been sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water, water that was like out of the laver there, you know, in front of the tabernacle. But now it's been washed with real, pure water. Friends, it just keeps getting better and better. In the tabernacle, God was saying, I want my people to dwell, to live with me. I am going to dwell in your midst. Now, the question now is, where is the Holy of Holies? Where is God dwelling? Where, where is the sacred place, the place where only one man in all of Israel could go one time a year, the high priest? Where is the holy of holies? And of course, the answer is, it's in you. It's in me. We are the, the holy of holies because of what Jesus did. God dwells in us this morning. And friends, that's, 
That's what it's all been pointing to. The altar of burnt offering, the laver, the lampstand, the table of the presence, the bread of presence, the altar of incense. It's all been for the purpose of God wanting to dwell in and with his people. And in a very real sense, we are, we've become the dwelling of God as his spirit dwells within us and goes to work in transforming and cleansing us of our sin and remaking us after the image of Jesus. I I mean, can you believe it? You are the holy of holies if God lives in you. You've been cleansed with pure water. You've had the blood of Jesus Christ sprinkled on your heart. And the writer of Hebrews says, therefore, you know, there's all kinds of therefores. I mean, the list is practically endless of how this ought to change us. But one of the ways he talks about it is, again, this dwelling language, this, this being with God. He says, therefore, draw near to God with great assurance that he'll receive you, that you're welcome because of the blood of Jesus. Draw near to God with great assurance, with a conscience that has been cleansed, that has been washed with pure water. And realize that you are that place where God dwells. So friends, no no matter what your circumstances this morning, how challenging or how joyous, how much you're celebrating or, or how confused you might be, no matter your circumstances, do you understand that God dwells with you? And that does change everything. What he's up to specifically in the midst of your difficulty, I might not be able to tell you that. I oftentimes don't know what he's up to in the midst of my difficulty. But I just know he's with me. I believe he's working in my life and on me. I believe he wants my trust, my faith to grow. And so with, with great confidence, I, I do the only thing I can do. I, I draw near to him and, and hold on and pray, and believe, and trust, and rejoice that he will never leave me or forsake me. Because he dwells right here. And he dwells right there with you. And we'll fully realize this one day when Jesus returns. And that day is coming. May it come soon. Father, we thank you that as we read what at first God can actually seem boring, lots of statistics about furniture and tents and curtains and bowls and lamps and this stuff at first, it it just, uh, we kind of miss its meaning. And yet, Father, when we stop and reflect and consider what's going on here, This was your invitation, your message, your reminding your people that you were going to dwell in their midst. And God, today, here you are dwelling with us, dwelling not just in our midst, but dwelling in us by your spirit. May you empower us to live and to be like our Savior, Jesus. May you empower us to set aside, lay aside the sin that so easily besets us. May you empower us, God, to give you honor and to give you glory and to live in the reality that, God, you are with us always.
always. Let us be a light and a witness to who you are, even to others, Father. We ask all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.